Well, I thought that it would be appropriate this morning to uh, take a break from our current study of John's Gospel to search in the Scriptures for a word from heaven about what we have experienced this week. The question is, is there a specific message that the Lord would want us to hear on a morning like this morning? Has He fitted any particular passage for an experience like the one we've just gone through? Does does the Scripture have anything specific to say, in other words, to God's people after a hurricane? And the answer, of course, is yes. Scripture always has something to say about absolutely everything. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. The Bible is like a lamp that lights the way of the righteous, and they are never left in darkness. So yes, there are passages designed specifically for the benefit of the church in times like these, and I believe that one of those is Psalm 29. So let's turn together to Psalm 29. Superscription reads, a psalm of David. Psalm 29, verse 1 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calf and strips the forest bare. And in His temple, all say glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with Peace. Now, what we have just read is really a description of a massive storm, a serious catastrophe, a national or a natural disaster witnessed by David and his people in Jerusalem. And of course, this description of the storm is not necessarily scientific in nature nor journalistic, but it, but rather it is poetic and it is. Theological. Theological. It teaches us about the storm, about the natural disaster from the vantage point of heaven. It assumes that this is really an unveiling, a revelation of God's infinite power. And it tells us what our response to that, gener- to that revelation should be. And that is, of course, worship. Worship. Ascribing glory and strength to the Almighty. Trusting once again in His ability to carry out the promises that He has made. In other words, apart from calling the unbelieving world to repentance, 
This song helps us believe in divine omnipotence. It puts the power of God on display for all to see. You see, sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking, or at least living under the assumption that God means well, but that maybe some things are just too difficult for Him. Maybe some things are just beyond His power. However, David writes here to remind us that actually nothing is too hard for God. And He shows that to us even in the natural disasters that we see around us. That's the message here. And that message is actually delivered to us in three parts. The psalm has three stanzas. First, there's a call to worship. Then there's the description of the reason for worship, which is really the storm. As we see the storm, here's why you ought to worship. And then the focus at the end shifts to the object of worship, and that is God Himself. So, call to worship, reason for worship, and object of worship. That's the outline that, the outline that I'm going to be following, following as we move through this passage. So, first, as we open up Psalm 29, we try to make sense of how, how, how are our thoughts to be directed when we see something like a hurricane. Uh, the first thing that we see there is a call to worship. Verses 1 and 2, David writes, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The verb ascribe here means to give simply. And I think the key for us here is to notice the threefold repetition of ascribe, ascribe, ascribe in these two verses. That's for the sake of emphasis. It needs to be repeated, especially because of the audience that David is writing to. I mean, sure, he is writing to the people of God, but notice that he picks a specific group here to address directly. And this group is known as sons of the mighty. The sons of them ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Now the, the root of the word mighty actually is one and the same as the word for God. The, the, the text literally says, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of God. Or you could also read it, and this is possible in the, in the, in the Hebrew, to read it in the plural. So it can't say, O sons of the gods. Both are possible. The Hebrew can be taken as singular God or plural gods. Now, if it is to be taken in the singular, ascribe, O sons of God, to God the glory, then David would be at this point addressing angels. Right? Because you might remember in Job 1.6 that the angels are referred to as sons of God. Job 1.6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh and Satan also came among them. In other words, the angels go by the title in scripture of sons of God. Why? Well, that's to denote this idea that they did not come through the process of natural generation, but rather the Lord created them directly. We know that because in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, after tracing the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ all the way back to Adam, the scriptures refer to Adam as the Son of God. So if the Lord makes you directly without using the process of generation then in that analogical way, the scripture would refer to you as 
son of God. Uh, it refers to the angels as sons of God and to Adam as the son of God. They, the angels and Adam are sons in a way in which we are not. And so David could be calling on the angels here to worship. He does that in other Psalms. And that's one option. The second option, again, is to take the Hebrew word for God here in the plural. In which case, this text would say, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the gods. That's actually the option that the NASB goes for here. But I think uh, that the, translate, the translators, for the sake of not confusing people, uh, translated the word as mighty. Because it does mean that. Um, so instead of saying gods, they put in uh, mighty, sons of the mighty, just to make sure that we don't confuse uh, that David might be saying that there are other gods beside the one true and living God. He would never say that. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. However, we did see last week that the Bible does refer to civil magistrates, judges and kings, people in political leadership as Gods. Psalm 82 verse 6. I said you are gods. That's because they are representing the Lord God in a unique way when they exercise their office. They are rulers and he is the ultimate ruler. So David could be speaking of political leaders here when he says ascribe to the Lord sons of God. Ascribe glory to him. They could be, um, even more specifically, sons of rulers. In which case, these people have power by succession or inheritance. They are not just in power, but they have royal blood. They are the elite of society. The upper cross. That, and that is who David is addressing. He's speaking them out. And saying, you, elite, you kings, ascribe glory to God. And really, when he does that, he is addressing everyone underneath them. Because leaders represent their people. And so to call them to worship is to call them and their people. But David is addressing them directly because of all people, these are the ones that are most likely to ascribe glory and honor to themselves rather than God. They're the, one, they're the ones that are most likely to resist the commandment to glorify God. After all, people in power are the ones that most often get blinded by power. Even today, the most arrogant people on the planet, if you think about it, broadly speaking, are the rich, the famous, and the powerful, right? In fact, in our age, as in ancient pagan society, we've gotten to the point to where the billionaire class of the world have begun to think of themselves as divine, really, in a number of ways, but... I think more than anything, you, you even hear it in the way in which you, they speak, for example, of population control. And you see, some of those powerful people in the world, they've decided that the world is too full. You hear much talk about that. And so they take upon themselves to change that. The people like 
Bill Gates and the World Economic Forum will say openly that the greatest hindrance, I, I looked this up this week, greatest hindrance in controlling poverty is the swiftly expanding population, especially of places like Africa. And so they say that they are going to do something about this. And so there's this radical push of con for contraception. And Bill Gates, in fact, says that if we do things right, contraception, I think he has other things in mind here, we could actually bring down the number of children being born in Africa by 30%. And that they, they would, again, use contraception, birth control. I'm sure they have other methods in mind, too, like the ones that they have been employing here in the Western world already to slow down the birth of children, abortion, for example, the murder of the unborn, the transgender propaganda. Did you know that the, uh, the push for abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism in many ways are highly motivated on the part of the globalist elite to lower the world's population. In fact, the last category to be added under the umbrella of the LGBTQ plus group is eunuch. We have a population of eunuchs now. They had those in ancient times, and now they're being brought back. Except now, they are chemically castrated minors. They're the children of parents who have been brainwashed to think that their children can change genders and they mutilate them. So, just some years from now, we're going to have an entire segment in our population of people who will be sterilized, they will be completely unable to have children, and all of that because some have de decided that the world is too full and we can do something about it. That is the kind of pride, the delusion that they are working with. They think that they can control the fate of humanity. Power has blinded them, and that is what happens to the mighty of the earth. But notice... That kind of pride is being humbled here. David is calling their attention to the massive catastrophe that everyone has witnessed. And he's using that to start to get them to think in the right way. Think about it. A storm of which man has absolutely no control has just barreled through the land. It has technically humbled our pride. It has shown that we are utterly powerless. So David says, even to the most haughty, ascribe glory to God, ascribe Him, and not to yourself glory and strength. The term glory in the Hebrew literally means heavy or weight. It denotes someone's significance. We ourselves like to say that this man or that man threw his weight around to get something accomplished. And that just means by, that, that he used his significance in the community to achieve a desired outcome. So his weight or your weight is your significance. And this psalmist is instructing these people to see the Lord, Yahweh, God, as the most significant. As the most significant. The, the one who carries all the weight. To see him as strong as omnipotent, all-powerful. He says, ascribe Him glory and strength. In other words, acknowledge that for God, nothing is impossible. He is all majesty and all strength. We are to confess that. Although, to be sure, it's not as though, as though our confessing that God is glorious and omnipotent actually makes Him that. No, Romans 11, 35 and 36 ask, who has... First given to him that it might be paid back to him again. 
For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. In other words, the Lord does not gain anything from our hands. Any more than a father becomes richer when he receives a $20 bill from his child that he first gave to him. God does not receive so as to become more. He's not enriched by our praise. But still, this is the grace of God. He accepts it. Just like that, that takes a $20 bill from his child. He accepts it as a gift. And that is by his own grace. And not only that, but he also accepts it because it is right. David even says he has ascribed to the Lord the glory due His name. Creatures are by nature indebted to their Creator. This is why salvation by works can make absolutely no sense. The fact that you breathe already puts you in debt toward God. So how can you now work to earn something from Him? It makes no sense. Salvation has to be free. So... To not give glory to God would actually be a sin on the part of the creature. And everyone is to do that. To give Him glory and strength. Now, to be sure, the parallel reality to this is that because God is holy, He must be worshipped in a very specific way, the way in which He Himself determines. We don't get to set the terms of our worship. In other words... When people are told to glorify God, even here, that is not to say that they can just do it in whichever way they want. No, God is God. God is in control. He gets to set the standard. And that's why David clarifies at the end of verse 2 that we are to worship the Lord in holy array. Worship in holy array. He's, he's clarifying whatever came before. Give glory to God, but worship Him in holy array. Now, the term worship, of course, as we know, means literally to bow down. And the word array means adornment or ornament. So, we can put it this way. The psalmist is instructing the people what they ought to wear, so to speak, when they come before the presence of the Lord. And that is not some priestly garb, not some specific dress code. That would be just ritualism. That would be a religion focused on the externals. But instead, God wants you to appear before Him. Notice the switch that I'm about to make in holiness. In holiness. How do you put on holiness? Well, first of all, you repent of your sin and you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You believe in the gospel. You stop trying to sew fig leaves together to cover your nakedness and put on garments of skin that God has made with the body and the blood. Of his son Jesus. As the hymn writer says. Come naked and adorn your soul. With robes prepared by God. Wrought by labors of his son. And died in his own blood. In other words. Stop trying to establish your own righteousness. To get to heaven on your own terms. Instead. Take the righteousness. That is outside of you. That is provided for you. By God. In his son Jesus Christ. Come to him by faith. As the one who is able to save, as the one who has offered a sufficient sacrifice that is able to cleanse even you from your sin. That's what it means to put on holiness. And really that happens in a moment in time when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are justified, you are put, your holiness is put on you. He is put on you as a garment 
that cannot be take, taken away. From that moment on, God sees you as righteous. Nevertheless, that is not to say that from that moment on, you become exactly like the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that you behave, right? We understand that. All of us who have been uh, Christians for any significant number uh, uh, period of time know that we are very sinful. And so... The fact that when we believe the gospel, that does not mean that we immediately only do things that please the Father. No, holiness still has to be learned and made progress in. This is the process of sanctification. A process of becoming like Christ as we walk with Him. And that process in Scripture is defined or described as the putting on of holy array or in New Testament terms... The putting off of the old self and the putting on of the Lord Jesus Christ. To put on the old self, it means to shed sinful habits and sinful deeds. That's what we are all, if you're a believer, that's what we are all called to do. To put off sinful habits. Colossians 3.8, we read this. But now... You also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Ephesians 4.22, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. James 1.21, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And 1 Peter 2.1 says, put aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So sin is like a filthy piece of, of clothes that you have to take off. A very good illustration that, that I've often heard preachers use, and I'll use it with you as well, is uh, when Lazarus is resurrected. Christ calls him and says, Lazarus, rise up. And Lazarus comes comes out of the grave. He's alive, right? But he still has all the old bandages of death and he has to take them off, right? This is what we're talking about here. When you are justified, you are declared righteous before the Lord God. And, 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 and now it is on you to take off, take off the old garments of sin. Now, of course, as all of those garments are coming off, something else has to come on it in its place, right? A lot of times people, a lot of times people uh, struggle getting rid of sin because they don't realize that it is not just about stopping sin. A lot of people think of Christianity as not sinning, right? But the, the point here is that it isn't about just stopping sin, but about replacing sin with something else, with righteousness, with good deeds. Ephesians 4.28, for example, says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. In other words, don't just stop being a taker, but rather become a giver. Replace an evil practice for a righteous one. That it, that's what it means to put off and then to put on. That's a powerful way to overcome sin in your life. And there are many verses about putting on holiness. Uh, Romans 13, 12. Put on the armor of light. So many things to put on. Uh, uh, verse 14 then says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in, regards, in regard to its lust. 
Ephesians 4.24 Put on the new self which, is, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And Ephesians 6.11 Put on the full armor of God. Colossians 3.10 Put on the new self which is being renewed in a true knowledge or truly true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And verse 12 Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. And verse 14 Put on love. And 1 Thessalonians 5.8, put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. In other words, put on Jesus Christ. All that Jesus Christ in, take it in and put that on. That's the acceptable worship that we are to render to the Lord. Paul calls it the reasonable spiritual worship. That's what it means really to worship in holy array as David is calling for here. So uh, notice, by the way, and I make this point again, that sincere worship is inseparable from holy living. For David, there is no ascribing glory to the Lord without putting on holy array. So he's calling for conversion for those who have never met the Lord, who do not know Him. And he's calling for sanctification, uh, continued progress for those who know Him as we praise God. That's... The commandment here. That's the call. So now starting in verse 3. He is going to focus on the reason why we should worship. He's, here's the reason for worship. Why the sons of the mighty must bow the knee to the Lord. And that starts again in verse 3. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. Now obviously the first question that we have to ask here is. What is the voice of the Lord? What does that stand for? And we know this is a storm he's talking about. Some life-threatening natural disaster. Notice that it starts out at sea. It starts upon the water. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. But then David says that also that it has thunders. And then he says that it is over many waters. In other words, it's gathering waters to itself. And then in verse 4, he says it's powerful and majestic. And then in verse 5, he starts talking about how it finally makes landfall. He says it breaks the cedars. And then in verse 8, he says it shakes the wilderness. And in verse 9, verse nine it says he, it makes the deer to calf and strips the forest bare. So this is really the, the same kind of phenomenon that has gripped our own attention this past week, isn't it? Except... That in our materialistic mindset, uh, we only see it as a force of nature, our world does, as a physical thing and no more. But David sees it theologically. For David, the storm and God, in some sense, are even one and the same. Notice even in verse 3, he says that it is the God of glory who thunders. And then it says not that the storm is over many waters... But that the Lord is. And then in verse 5 it says, The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. And verse 6 says, He makes Lebanon skip like a calf. And verse 8 says, He shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. In other words, it is as though the storm is God's ambassador, His representative. Whatever the storm does, that is God's doing. Whatever or wherever the storm goes, that is God going. The storm, again, is God's instrument. By the way, this is no different than when the actions of the enemies of 
Israel are said to be God's own actions against his people. In the book of Lamentations, for example, God is said to have done to Jerusalem the things that the Babylonians in reality had done to them. Lamentations 2.8 The Lord determined to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not restrained his hand from destroying and he has caused rampart and wall to lament. All of those things the Babylonians had done. And yet, they're being ascribed to God Himself. In Isaiah 10.5, He Himself says of Assyria, that Assyria is the rod of my anger. And down in verse 15, He says that they are like the axe. And He is the one who chops with it. So, those things which bring calamity into this world, whether a vicious army or a raging storm, are actually just instruments in the hands of of God. They're the brushes with which he paints the axe with which he chops. And in fact, for David, this storm is actually even God's mouthpiece. Because notice that he refers to the storm again throughout the psalm as the voice of the Lord. Why? Well, think about it. The storm brings a divine communication to humanity. Ian brought a divine communication to humanity. You see, if someone were to ask you, does God speak today? You would say, yes, He does. Through the Scriptures, right? Through His Word. But also, you would have to say that He speaks through nature, right? We call that general revelation. Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. And likewise, the natural catastrophe is designed... To say a lot about the might and the power of God. The great difference, however, is that while Scripture tells us about the grace and the forgiveness that God has offered in Jesus Christ and what He has done for sinners in history, the storm is not salvific. General Revelation does not save. It only tells us about God's might and power and glory. Verse 4 even says, The the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. And all of this, if you think about it, when sinners are seeing what is going on around them, it should be crushing to them. Because creation and the storm are putting together a display of the glory of God. But in in doing so, in, in revealing the glory of God, at the same time, creation is shining a light on us in how far short we fall of that glory. So what is revealed in these things, it's not salvation, but wrath. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. In other words, the storm, in this case Ian, is a preacher of condemnation upon this world. Condemnation and divine destruction. In fact, look at verse 5. It says, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. That verb, to break, is used of shattering clay jars and of splintering wooden staffs. And the term cedar, of course, refers to cedar trees. Those were recognized in the ancient world as uniquely strong and stately and durable. They were actually the kind that Solomon himself used to, to build the first temple and the kind that Zerubbabel used to build the second temple. So this is really fine and strong wood. And in fact, 
Scripture itself will, will compare the great kings of the earth, the Assyrian, the Egyptian, with towering cedar. And those cedar trees were usually found all over Palestine, but especially in Lebanon. That's why Isaiah 35 verse 2 and, and chapter 60 verse 13 calls them the glory of Lebanon. And notice that David mentions Lebanon here. Second half of verse 5. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. So the storm has finally made landfall. It has come from the Mediterranean Sea. It's made its way to Lebanon, which is not that far off. And the Lebanon would have been a double mountain range north of Palestine that was known for its beauty. In fact, the name Lebanon itself means exceedingly white. Named so because of those peaks that were covered with snow so much of the year. And Lebanon was known not only for its cedars, but also for its wine and fragrant flowers and cool water. And yet, even that kind of paradise is not spared. Verse 6 says, He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Now, Syrian is just another name for Mount Hermon. We read about Mount Hermon all over the Psalms as well. That was the loftiest peak in that entire mountain range, visible from Jerusalem. But Mount Hermon and the rest of the territory are said to be skipping like cows and like a young wild ox. In other words, they're jumping up and down as this storm is pouncing on them. And you ask, what does this mean? Most of the commentators would actually say, David is saying that there's an earthquake also going on. That compounded to the storm, an earthquake, a violent earthquake is added. And even fire, look at verse 7. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. That verb to hew means to, div- to divide. But what does that mean? Well, um, it, it means that God scatters bolts of lightning across the land. He sends them out separately and they start fires. So Again, this is a massive storm. An earthquake is making it worse. And the stately trees are not only torn to pieces, but they're also burning because of the lightning that has set them on fire. This is a catastrophe through and through. And it is communicating to sinners, going back to what I was saying, that God is a righteous judge. And that He will not spare this world. He will one day come to destroy And so they ought to be seeking Him while there's still time. A storm is a preacher of condemnation. One day God will destroy this world. And so we ought to learn the fear of God. And actually that message itself is in some sense not lost on creation itself. The animal kingdom. Verse 8. It says, The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Now, the Kadesh here is not the same as Kadesh Barnea, where Moses sent the 12 spies into the promised land. That would have been off to the south. But this is a desert, the wilderness of Kadesh. And it would have been right east of Lebanon, in the same area. Which means, at this point, that the storm is still moving further inland, further east. But even there, it is making the wilderness shake, as it says. Now... At first, we might read that and start thinking that David is just repeating the fact that there is an earthquake together with the storm, as it said in the last verse. However, the verb to shake here actually means to cause to tremble. To cause to tremble. Which means that he may be speaking of fear instead. 
And he may be saying that the wilderness herself is terrified rather than that an earthquake is shaking it. And I believe that that's right because of what he says in verse 9. He says in verse first half of verse 9, The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calf and strips the forest bare. So the animals, in this case the deer, are giving birth prematurely. They're full of fear. That's how shocking all of this is. When it says that the voice of the Lord stripped the forest bare, that means one of two things. Either that all of the leaves have been blown away, or else that the storm has made all of the animals withdraw into their dens. They've left the wilderness. The forest, as it were, has been stripped bare of all wildlife. The animal kingdom, in other words, in poetic words, has learned to fear God. And I think that that's what David is saying here, especially because of what he says next. He says in the second half of verse 9, and in his temple, everything says glory. Now notice, now we're talking about the response of the storm that uh, what kind of response it inspires among men in the temple. There's a shouting of glory, which makes, makes me think that everything that David said in the first half of verse 9 actually was intended to describe the response of the animal kingdom to the storm. And that is utter terror and fleeing. It, the forest was made desolate. They all left. They all hid in their in their lairs and their hiding places. But oddly enough, and this is a tragedy, the response among men is very different. Notice David doesn't mention the city. He doesn't mention the marketplace. He doesn't say what happened in the palaces. Even though the voice of the Lord went out to all the world. That silence is deafening. And it actually means that the world of mankind did not hear, did not heed the warning. They did not learn the fear of God, even as the animals themselves did. Only a few got it, and those were the ones in the temple. David says, in his temple, presumably nowhere else, everything or all say glory. Notice, this is exactly what everyone had been called upon to do in verses 1 and 2, right? Ascribe glory to God. And yet, only those in the temple are following through with that. This is, by the way, why I love the church. And why I am committed to the church. Not because it's perfect, not because I derive some personal benefit from it, but rather because these are the people who give glory to God. The glory that He deserves. That's why I want to be among the saints. They are the ones who say glory. Even in the face of adversity. In fact, because of adversity, they end up seeing God for who He really is. And that brings me to the third and final point. And that is on the object of worship. So first we saw the call to worship, then the reason for worship. And now we turn to the object of worship. And that starts in verse 10. Yahweh, the Lord, sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. Now, I think that we're, when we read this, especially because of what's going on this week, we're tempted to assume that the word flood here refers to um, something that follows this, the storm, like a storm surge. That's not what this is talking about. 
Because the Hebrew word for flood that is used here means only one thing in all of Scripture. And that is Noah's flood. You say, Noah's flood? Why is David all of a sudden bringing up Noah's flood? Why is he changing the topic? Why refer to that catastrophe? And the answer has to do with the very picture that Noah's flood brings into our minds. And it has to do with the themes that are associated with the flood in Genesis. Think about it. At that time, as we know, God judged the entire world and destroyed by water the entire human race, save for eight people because of its wickedness. And then he, once he had accomplished what he wanted to accomplish, restrained the water. He stopped it. And in doing that, he showed that he was sitting as king over all the forces of nature. He showed that every molecule of water was at his command. Remember, before that, it had never rained and men were saying, that's crazy, it's never rained before. And yet here is God showing, I am the God of nature. I command all molecules of water. It's all mine. It's all a servant to me. However, as David points out here, it's not as though that stopped after the flood back then. No, it's not as though God relinquished His power. He's as much in control today as He was back then. And that's why He says in the second part of, part of verse 12, Yes, the Lord sits as King forever. In other words, if you knew He was King over the flood, then remember that He is the same today still, and He is still in perfect control of creation. And that is never going to end. He's just as much a king of this storm as he was king over the flood. He is in control, we can say now, of Ian as he was of the storm in Psalm 29 and as he was of the flood in Genesis. And why is it important that we remember that? Uh, why do we have to keep that at the forefront of our minds? Well, for one... Because after the flood, the Lord promised that He would never destroy the earth by water again. And so while there may be natural disasters, hurricanes, storms, earthquakes, tsunamis, none of them will ever be so severe so, so as to halt the work of recreation. The world will remain as it is until Jesus Christ comes back. There's your lesson on global warming today. <laughs> Nothing will stop the spread of God's kingdom. No natural disaster will stop His perfect plan from moving forward. That's why, that's, what, that's why we need to remember that He sits as King over every natural disaster. But more than that, we also need to remember that, that we also need to remember this, that He is King over the flood. Because if we have entered into covenant with Him, if we have taken Him to be our God, if we have entrusted our eternal souls to Him, if we have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we need to have confidence that He is able to get us through this life. That He's able to protect us. That He's able to save us, to strengthen us. That's the promise that he makes in verse 11, David writes, The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. 
Notice how powerful he is. He will do this. He can do it. He's just shown you that he can. But notice, by the way, this is not a promise for everyone. It's not universal. No, it is for God's covenant people. They will receive strength from him. He's just shown them that he is strong. And they will be blessed with peace by him. The word for peace here is shalom, which is not just the absence of war, but the granting of perfect well-being, thoroughness. This is the gospel. God sending His own dear Son to reconcile us to Himself through the blood of His cross, to offer a perfect atonement for sin, to absorb the penalty. That we so... That we so um, were indebted to Him so that the believer might never have to pay that penalty for himself. That he would never have to pay a penalty to divine justice. So that we would be accounted as righteous and be reconciled with God. That's the peace which is first and foremost being promised here. And this promise becomes so much more meaningful when we have just witnessed so much of God's power, isn't it? I mean, God has shown us that He is able to carry out whatever He has promised. You think, if God can create so much havoc in such a short period of time, if He can down so many trees and destroy so many houses, then surely He can get me through this day. He can get me through this hour. He can get me through financial difficulty. He can get me through widowhood. He can help me battle discouragement. He can give me grace to honor Him through this illness. He can help me overcome sin. He can help me fulfill the ministry that He has given to me. He can resurrect my body when it lies in the grave. It's the same power. He's able to do it. Again, I mentioned at the beginning that sometimes we... We think that God means well, but we suspect that there are some things that are beyond His capabilities. But I hope that this week and this text, as, interpreted, as it interprets the events for us this week, will serve to remind us that there are no limits to what the Almighty can do. Because understanding that will provide such freedom to us. It will actually help us to be weak and to boast in our weakness. Second Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If you're not a Christian, let this hurricane remind you that God is angry with the wicked every day and He is preaching judgment. He will judge the world. The next time it will be by fire. And none of the things that you love so much today are going to remain. And you yourself will have to face Him who is a consuming fire. It says in the scriptures that it is appointed unto man once to die and then comes judgment. So this is the time to get it right with Him. Today is the day of salvation. This is the day to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, to bow the knee to Him, to confess Him as Lord, to receive the garments of His righteousness. So ask, and you shall receive. 
But do not wait until it is too late. Do it now. Come to Him. Be forgiven. And as the psalmist says, render to God, not just you, but also the saints, the glory and strength that are due His name. Let's pray. We do worship You and ascribe all glory and strength and power to You, O great God. We pray that You would teach us to fear You and to walk in light of the truths, even of what we have witnessed this week. We praise You for the power of creation. We praise You that You are the God of the storm. We praise You, Lord Jesus, that You could calm the storm with a whisper. And so, pray that You would calm the storms even in our hearts, and that that You would draw us to Yourself and help us to set our confidence in You even now. In your name, amen.